0: If I can go ahead and invite you to start finding a seat, and uh, if you want to grab another sandwich before we start, this is the time. Thank you for coming to the Steens Dialogue series. We're very excited uh, as Duke Chapel to host these and appreciate Fuqua's uh, allowing us to come once again and and, and have a conversation here in this place. The reason we do these conversations is so that we have some place in the university where we're able to bring up the larger topics of common concern. Because as a university community, if we don't look at the larger topics, then we've wasted an opportunity that has been given to us. And so we hope that these topics are all broad enough, such as leadership in difficult times, that we can focus on how, as particularly as a university community, we can focus on making the world a better place. And so as you listen to the conversation, I invite you to think about those larger topics. I also invite you to think of questions as we hear our dialogue because we have about 15 minutes at the end of the session where we'll turn the program over to you and you can ask questions. Now I'd like to introduce two men that need no introduction. And so to do justice to either of them would take the entirety of our time. So let me give a very brief synopsis of introducing them. Dean Blair Shepherd of Fuqua School of Business and Chair and Founder of Duke Corporate Education. He joined the staff at Fuqua in 1981, the faculty, and has had quite an august career since doing that. He's offered consulting services to more than 100 companies and governments in the areas of corporate strategy, relationship management, structure, and leadership. He he has extensive extensive research on corporate strategy, relationship management, structure, and leadership, which has resulted in more than 50 books and articles when Dean Shepard created Duke Corporate Education in July of 2000. The company was the first full service provider of customized enterprise-wide management education to global organizations. Under his leadership, Duke Corporate Ed Ed grew in seven years from one office with 39 employees and 12 million in revenue to five offices on three continents with 140 employees and 56 million in in revenue and we're very excited to be able to hear his thoughts on what it means to have leadership in difficult times. And the Reverend Dr. Samuel Wells uh, has been Dean of Duke University Chapel since 2005. He came with a wonderful and varied experience as a community worker in inner city Liverpool and also as a parish priest in the Church of England serving a variety of parishes. He's also research professor of Christian ethics at Duke Divinity School and he has published as single author works six books and innumerable articles and co-authored works as well. And so without further ado, I would like to introduce to you uh, Dean Sam Wells and Dean Blair Shepherd.
1: Uh, Blair, I wonder if you could tell me what makes a good leader?
2: (laughs) Easy questions first. uh, so, so just a story. When I first became an assistant professor, there was this whole theme going on in the world that, that leaders were people who built new things, right? Um, and so we essentially kind of reified the entrepreneur, the, the inventor. Um, and and uh, over time, I've actually come to realize that actually the most difficult task of leadership is uh, sort of reinvigorating institutions that matter in the world right and and so um, and and therefore, as you think about leader, you have to sort of be able to put those two things together and say, what do they share in common right um, i think so to me, it comes down to two fundamental issues. The first is, how do you create a sense of mission that is um, both purposeful in a very fundamental sense, but also realistic in light of what's going on in the world today, right? So, so that one of the ways institutions get in trouble is they actually have a great sense of mission, but actually they just miss what's happening, or they actually are so responsive to what's going on they forgot who they are, right? I mean, those are two ways. But it's the same thing with the person who starts something. If you're going to start something, there's got to be purposefulness to it that it, to attract people, but it also has to be responsive to the reality. And I think that's the first requisite of a great leader. I think the second requisite of a great leader is that they actually um, understand that having chosen to be a leader, um, they have no self-interest. Right. Um, and that actually the criterion by which you would then evaluate were they any good was, are the people who are being led actually achieving what they should be? And um, and if you, I think if you get those two things right, I mean there's competency and all that, so if you get those two things right, most of the rest takes care of itself.
1: So Talk us through what uh, a kind of life cycle of a leader, because uh, a lot of people 's imaginations about being a leader are the first hundred days or those sort of, you know those sorts of sense that you know he really came into this place and turned it all around is one of the great you know myths of leadership uh, but also uh, i i've certainly had personal experience of the back end of leadership where somebody you know creates this huge wave and then Disappears, and there 's no transition and, and, and then everyone feels either let down or confused or, uh, and then or fearful because they feel the next person is going to come in, and then they 're going to have their first hundred days and they 're going to go through the whole sort of life cycle again. Yeah, yeah. Is there a, d- 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 tell me a little bit about your reflections on, on that pattern.
2: so I think I uh, mean um, it just speaks to the person who's the institutional leader who actually comes in and actually tries to help a place get reinvigorated right. Um, I think first 100 days is completely overblown. I think the purpose of the first 100 first days is to actually figure out what it is that, that it's, you actually have to know how to open and close the doors, right? I mean, the, the, the premise the premise that you can actually have a positive effect on a place in the beginning is an unbelievably arrogant premise. Um, and so I think the, re- the requisite of the beginning of a leader is you actually be humble enough to learn, right? You got to start by saying, I don't know anything. Whatever preconceptions I had are wrong and so I need to come in and learn. And I need to come in and establish a set of relationships and the level of trust that will allow us to actually progress in place however it needs to progress. And I think two things you need to learn in particular, one of them is you actually have to understand w- sort of the essence of the institution you're actually taking over. You, because ha- you one of the ways that leaders really harm organizations is they forget they, they actually don't have a deep enough appreciation for what made it what it is today, right um, which is what I mean sort of go back and remember core mission, for example, right but, but, the, but it's the personality of the place, the attributes, and so so there's a that's one piece which is understand it well on its terms rather than yours, and then I think the second one is actually understand all of the issues going on that need attending to right and and that your task in part in the first hundred days is to learn enough about those things that you actually can have a hypothesis. The second piece is actually create a team that can do it because you know, no, you, you, the idea that a leader does anything is ridiculous, right? Actually the people who work for someone do it and their job, is to, your job is to support the people who do it, right? So that's the first, and you know, I think it's a lot more than a hundred days, I think that's the first six months, right? This first nine months. And then I think in part your task is to take stuff on that has enough substance to it that people see progress but realize that what you're taking on is actually the first step in a long, long, long chess game where actually the end game is what you're playing to rather than the event you're, you're engaged with right now, which is sort of how do, what, do we, what do we need this to look like so that we start the path dependency in a way that goes forward, right? And, and there's a really important point to that, which is that the end game you're playing to is actually not the end of your term. It's actually, as a university, for example, I think the, you know, the time horizon's infinity, right? So so, so what's this thing look like some very long distance out? Um, but it's got to be far enough out that actually you worry about the continuity problem, right? And that only works if you actually go back and say, what's special about this place in the first place? Because what you don't want to do is tether someone... To something which is you're imprinting yourself on an institution. has nothing to do with the institution that was there in the first place, right? And then um, you just you just execute well, right? And you actually build talent. Uh, I think the the thing a lot of people forget. I think in the middle part of your job, or the f- or the end of the first part of your job as a leader, is that you are a capability builder. That your job is to help other people grow into the capacities they need to grow in to do what it is you're asking them to do. Because invariably it's harder than what it was they were doing before, right? I'm going to give you an example. Um, with this, the global part of our strategy and with the verticals part of our strategy, both of the parts of our strategy, everyone who's in a role is now doing something they're really bad at, right? Because it's not what they were doing. And so we have a lot of people at Fuqua who are just exceptional talents who had to be willing to sort of take a walk off a cliff that goes something like the following. You were among the best in the world at what you presently do, and that's why you have the job you have. We're about to shift that about 90 degrees on you, not 180, but 90 degrees. And so it's a really good bet that the next step you're going to take, you're really bad at, right? You're just bad at. And it's a pretty good bet that you're bad at it in some cases because no one in the world ever done it before. But it's clear you're bad at it because you've never done it before. And so a part of the job of a leader is to actually create, make that actually not a cliff walk but actually something that feels more like a, you know, a kind of a, a, a progress down a ramp. And, you know, take care of people in the process and then build the capabilities behind that very scary proposition. Because right? if, if, you know, if someone is, if the first day they're really, 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 really incompetent, you want to get rid of one of the reallys, right? And then at some point they're actually just incompetent and, and, and then they get really good, right? And you have to help migrate them to that process. Because um, what matters is actually the cumulative capability of the people in the institution. It's not, I mean, that's what matters, right? So that's, that's the big piece. And I think the next piece is um, realizing you're mortal. Right, And and therefore, having two kinds of perspectives as it relates to a transition. The first perspective is that you know you're wrong, so don't fix things so much that whatever you did wrong couldn't be undone. Although, you know, I'll give you an exception to that in a minute. A- and, then, uh, and then the second is um, that you have to be building the capability in the organization so that there is a person in the organization to take over if need be. Now, in a university, oftentimes that doesn't happen. But you've got to know there's a person or two or three or four who could be dean if you left, right, in this case. Um, and, uh, and, and therefore, it's capability building again. Long answer, sorry. Mm. Can leadership be taught? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 we had this debate. You know, I used to teach negotiation. And there's a guy who was one of the great negotiators in the world who said, Blair, can't teach negotiation, right? And what he was essentially saying is there's a set of characteristics that you learned in childhood that actually carry you well in such circumstances, and then it's hard to, you know, it's hard to go back to childhood. Um, but that's something like saying you can't take a great mathematician and make him smarter, right? So in a sense, what you can do is take the distribution and move it, right? So someone who has inherently natural qualities, so someone who's socially competent to begin with, someone who's got huge horsepower, someone who's got empathy, someone who has strategic insight... Um, someone who is magnetic, magnetic, but, but not um, inappropriately so. That's, those are good features to carry into the circumstances, but you can make that person better, right? Um, you can make a sort of a very shy, reserved person a much more effective leader if you work with them. So, but I think you have to think about it as a distribution that gets slightly tighter and moves to the right or left, whichever one is so better or worse. Um,
1: I guess a different way of asking the question uh, which I'm still not clear about after, <laughs> after your answer, but I think, I think I'm getting clearer, is does training people as leaders start with a set of general, albeit flexible, criteria of what kind of qualities a, a leader might be expected to have? Or does it really start with the personal qualities of, of the individual human being? And, and is it largely about massaging and challenging and stretching those inherent qualities, that, you know which is the best way to go, I know you 're going to say both but yeah, but yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. the answer is <laughs> yes, you know, it is.
2: I mean, so it turns out that that you know over time i 've gotten persuaded that that great leaders share things in common right. and and those are things you develop in people, right, so one of the things is that great leaders actually um, there's like, there 's these sort of uh, paradoxes that great leaders reconcile, which is you know what does it mean to be someone who's compelling but actually but, but actually build, build um, internalization and capability in organization. The, the risk of being purely compelling is that people do it because of you, and as soon as you're gone, the whole thing falls apart. Um, but if you're not compelling, it doesn't start in the first place. So there's these paradoxes in leadership, right? And, and we know what they are. We've seen them forever. And actually, there's some ways to reconcile those paradoxes, and that's quite teachable. It's really, really quite teachable. Um, but then there's features like, you know, what does it mean to be socially competent? You know, I think by the time you're 50, it's kind of hard to fix that, right? Um, you can. You can. Um, and so what you then have to do is actually build on the person. And, and there are really radically different ways of approaching a job, right? So, so there are two deans that I know extremely well um, of business schools, one of whom was an unbelievably gregarious guy and one of whom was a phenomenally introverted person. And the, both of them were brilliant deans, but they were brilliant deans in dramatically different ways, right? You, you will find the same pattern in their behavior, though, right? They just did it differently, right? So, for example, they never gave up, right? They persevered in ways that others just don't, right? Um, they, um, they had a deep respect for their faculty in a way that others don't. I mean, so there were, there were attributes to them... That they held in common, although if you looked at the behavior, it would be radically different. And and so I think the answer is, of course, yes.
1: C- could you I uh, would turn the turn the uh, shift the dial a <coughs> tiny bit to business more specifically, because um, I guess I I have a picture in my mind of the archetypal business entrepreneur, often uh, maybe a, uh, begins as a family business, who for whom um, what you described at the beginning as the second of your two criteria the the lack of personal ego or the lack of uh, a personal stake is probably not an apt description uh, of that stereotypical figure uh, and who doesn't have to worry about things like democracy that that elected leaders have to worry about because it's you know it's the bottom line in the end and if the bottom line is is working and is going well then uh, the, you know the money speaks for itself and after a period of time you get almost all the, the problems that you identified in terms of succession and so on, and personal charisma, or, or charisma may be a nice word for it in some, in some circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, does a business have particular problems and maybe particular opportunities in this regard in terms of insights about leadership?
2: No, I think you're describing founders of anything, actually. You know, the founders of a church, same thing, right? I mean, uh, there are characteristics of people who start things that are different from characters of people who carry things forward after they've been started, right? Um, and, and, you know, one of the things you know is that if you're going to start something, you better be charismatic, right? Um, if you're going to start something, you better be good at using other people's assets because you don't own any, right? I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some features to starting stuff that are, that are particular. And that's where I was saying, I started with the belief that that's what good leadership was. It actually turns out. It's very important, and I actually think it's very important in the United States because, you know, we have forgotten the entrepreneur in this country in a way that's really dangerous, right? So, so I don't mean to belittle this role. I think it's unbelievably important and I hope a third of our students are, right? But, but don't characterize that as leadership, right? Most of the leadership positions in this world are within existing institutions, right? So now let's come back to the category of leader who starts stuff, okay? I don't think it's about the money usually. I really think it is about the success of the idea, right? That most people begin things not because they're trying to get wealthy, but because they've got a thing they want to prove, right? There's a concept, there's an idea, there's a product, there's a, and they want to, and they want to make that work. And there's this very interesting paradox in that person, by the way, which is they're absolutely persuaded their idea is right, and they're willing to give up on a particular instantiation of the idea immediately. Right. Um, because they know the following thing, that in the main I'm right, in the specific I'm wrong. Right, so there's this odd kind of quality to that person which is they persevere in spite of all sorts of stuff but then they just feel like they're throwing things away like crazy. Um, they're also just incredibly good at d- at sucking others in. Right, so if you're going to be successful in anything that's a startup, you've got to use other people's assets for free, right, um, because you're never going to have enough money to do it and therefore they're really good at, at bringing other people in. So there's a compellingness required in some of the features of a starting entity that just gets in the way of sustaining it over time. And, and there is a personal compellingness. So usually the reason a, a you know, manufacturer is willing to give you a day in their plant is because you know them, they like you, they trust you, and they think, you know, I'll do this as a favor to you usually the reason people give you money is because they they're betting on you. Right? Usually the reason people come is because somehow they believe that you're right. right? And, and when you begin something, there's a tremendous, um, tremendous sort of people look you in the eye and say, is it, am I willing to follow you? Right? When I started Duke CE, the worst day of my life, I think, um, probably other than when my, one of my parents died, um was laying off people from Duke Right. And the reason is they came there because I I asked them to. Right? Um and so there is a very personal quality to starting something, right? And I mean you can't deny that. You can't but 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 it's not, you know, it's, uh, um and at some point If an organization is going to succeed that started, it has to migrate away from that, right? Now, there's, you know, there's a couple of arguments, two theories of how that happens, right? The first is you could think of as kill dad, right, or kill mom. Whoever the founder is, founds it, and then there's a need for this fairly disruptive transition. And in that disruptive transition, you literally remove the person, right? and, and, you know, sometimes there's this huge fight in the senior team, you kick them off. Sometimes they're put into the, you know, they're, they're given the research job or whatever <laughs> it is. But, but, uh, but essentially there's this whole issue of, you know, it's like the kid grows up and as many of us did in our teens, we sort of get independent in stupid ways. But that's a way of sort of rejecting mom or dad, right? I, I don't think it has to be. And I think there are personalities that evoke that in particular and they're the kind you're describing. But there's an awful lot of stories of people who actually did very seamless transitions. And they essentially said, you know, now that the thing started, my job is to build capability. My job is to build the next generation. My job is to realize I'm mortal. I think a huge difference, if I look at those two groups, the ones where the transition is easy and the ones where the transition is relatively hard, it has to do with the degree to which it's about my success or its success right, and it being either a collective of people, so their success, or the idea, or the thing we're trying to do for the world, and the degree to which it's actually about something other than my own measure of success, so how much money did I make, whatever it is, and it's about this thing matters a lot and I want it to stay, that orientation causes a lot of difference between the two. They start much the same way though.
1: I wonder if I could move the conversation just slightly picking up on your painful experience with Duke CE at a particular stage, not overall, I think, but at a particular stage, um, and talk about this second half of the theme of the day, the, the difficult times. I, I was once, uh, I vividly remember <laughs> being at a, at a very difficult time uh, many years ago uh, with a, a bishop, I guess, as a leader in my kind of world. and. Uh, I remember him saying, um, I think this is a time for holding our nerve. And then I remember calling him two months later to discuss the same question. And he said, I think this is a time for holding our nerve. I think I said that last time, didn't I? I remember thinking that wasn't my model of leadership in difficult (laughs) times. I wonder if you could say, are there particular qualities? I mean, is, is leadership in difficult times really simply a a focused, more intense version of a, a, a genus called leadership or are there particular qualities that you could well, I think tell I us d- about that, 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 are, that are significant when things get difficult?
2: So I think um, you know, there's a set of features that are really, really important as I've looked across people who have managed well in difficult times and I think managed badly in difficult times. first piece is honesty, right? It, a, a fundamental issue is you have to be willing to admit you're in trouble. Right. Um, and you actually have to be willing to admit how you got there and why you're there. And, and um, that requires a level of candor and honesty and a kind of uh, sort of acknowledgement of the environment that is oftentimes rare. Right? And, and, and if you go back to the founding leader, one of the dilemmas of founding leaders is they either get reified or they're terrifying. Right? But has the same net result is that people won't tell them the truth. Right. If they're reified, they say, well, they, you know, they know everything, so how can I possibly add any new data? If they're terrifying, they say, I'm not going to tell you because they'll kill me, right? I mean, or some variant of that. And, and um, I won't feel good after the conversation. So, so, so first piece is honesty, because the, the, the only way to deal with difficult times is to actually know how bad they are, right? And actually know what's causing them, and, and therefore be really very clinical about it in the sense of let's get real about where we are. Second piece is that I think a, that, that people who do well are really mission focused, right? Um, or values focused or that, but, I, but in this case I mean mission which is in a really, really difficult circumstance, the best principle to have is to say why are we here? In a fundamental sense and let's let that guide every decision we ever take. And, and when I see people make mistakes, they do things like um, there's a constituent out here we have to satisfy, and they get focused on that constituent and they forget actually their core mission, or there's a, you know, it's about preservation versus, and you know, there are times when which you've got to say about an organization, if we behave this way, it doesn't matter that we're successful anymore because we actually lost the reason we we're here in the first place, right? So, so there's this element of difficult times where it's really critical to remember who you are and why you're here, right? I think the third piece in difficult times is, um, it 's a point in which you have to have this interesting duality, which is the ability to take a very, very difficult decision and an unbelievable concern for care right, right. and and you actually have to put the two against each other and and it, because what it really is is two forms of justice really right the one form of justice is um, we have to make sure that the majority of people in this organization are actually survive whatever we find ourselves in. We have to make sure that that the institution actually retains its essential quality as we go through this thing. And you've got to make sure that whatever harm you're going to do as a result of doing that former is actually um, considered and and managed and mitigated as much as it possibly can. Um, and, And I think a lot of times what happens is Instead of putting and in that question, we make it a choice, right? So we'll say, well, let's take care of people, but then the net result is you actually don't respond effectively enough to the problem, and therefore the whole thing fails. Or you say, you know, we know these people matter, but it turns out this is just so important, we'll forget it, and you drive through. And then the net result is the people you should have taken care of. Um, And and invariably, both of those will come back to bite you, right? Um, uh, And then I think the fourth one is, you've got to be decisive. Right, and I think those are qualities that are really critical in difficult times that maybe you could say matter to leadership broadly. But if you don't have them in difficult times, you're just dead. You're just dead in the water.
1: I, I look, I mean, I wonder if I could add a couple of things into that list. I mean, uh, partly from observing your leadership. <laughs> so uh, I, I, not that I'd take anything out of those four. But it um, seems to me once you've said it's terrible, um, and this is why. You're, um, you're, you're cent- I mean, One of the things you're then engaging with is people's sense of paralysis and powerlessness. Yeah, yeah. And, and to dismantle, or at least to, to engage with that powerlessness, uh, I feel there's a need to say something like, but here are the four things we can actually do today, and let's do them. Mm-hmm rather than, I mean, it seems to y- a leader needs to be able to articulate some simple, yeah. practical things. I mean, I think, if, if for example, in the face of the environmental crisis, you could say, it's terrible, we'll all be underwater in 100 years. Well, I guess that's it. We go, you know, the, the, the You've got to be able to say, but we can all do this. Um, but also, when one of the things that I've noticed in your leadership, I've noticed in um, other leaders around campus, I won't particularly name names, but is this ability to say, uh, you, you, you started the interview by talking about the, you know, the, the mission and uh, why we're here, uh, as you articulated it just now, that there's something about this crisis that enables us to be renewed in our real purpose that makes us almost grateful for this crisis because we can discover something we wouldn't otherwise have known.
2: So,
0: I, th- I actually meant to
2: say both of those, things. you said a better night, than so, so, so thank you. I mean, uh, um, y- there's a part of what you just said that, that can be disingenuous. And, and so, uh, I, n- I don't like any crisis. I've never met a crisis I like, really. I just I mean, um, there's a silver lining in everything, but, but I've never met a crisis I like. So, you know, so, what happened to us, if I go back to Duke was 9 11 hit. And for three months, there was no business because no one got on a plane. But I didn't like that at all. And, and I didn't like the consequences it had on the organization I was leader of. But you had to do two things with that. I mean, you had to actually say there's things we can do and we can do them now so you can get control again. Because what happens in difficult times is there's felt loss of control. And so part of your job as a leader is, and that's what I mean by be decisive, I guess to say there's things we can do, let's do them now, so that you can reacquire control over the circumstances, right? Because if you don't do that, people will get paralyzed, right? Um, and, and, uh, and then I think the other piece though is that actually there's, you know, things get fat, things get, things get lazy, things get wrong, and there's a chance to refresh, but there's also a chance in every crisis to create an opportunity for an even better future than the, than the vector you were on, right? So, you know, one of the questions I've been getting a lot now is why are you doing international now? Because you can't, you couldn't have afforded it when you were rich. You clearly can't afford it now, right? And the answer is what better time? Right, as long as you don't bankrupt to join, right? What better time because actually what we've demonstrated even more than ever is global interdependence. If there ever was a demonstration of global interdependence, it was the last three years and, um, and we've got a chance to do something. So what's really interesting, you go back to P&G during the Depression, they doubled down on advertising. It was really interesting during the Depression, right, when no one had any money. What happened is they came out, the largest consumer goods firm, by about three to one and they went in second, okay? So, so there's a, you know, that's a trite example, but, 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 you know, it turns out that in every crisis there's a chance to reinvigorate the future, and I think that's true. But I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm glad the crisis came. I mean, maybe I would, but, but um, <laughs> I've never liked them when I was in them, I mean, there's just no fun. Right? This is not fun, by the way, right, you know. Having to go to people and say we don't have a position, that's not a good thing, and it never will be just not a good thing.
1: And I guess uh, I, I, c- I can see Gaston's giving me that indication that it's time for other people other than the two of us to speak, which is very appropriate. Um, but I'm going to take no notice of that for a while. But, but, uh, but you're going to come in shortly, so do get your, your questions ready. Uh, maybe one last question. Could you um, make it personal? Tell us about one or two people who've really inspired you in the way that they've handled leadership maybe particularly in in difficult times.
2: So, you know, I'll tell you someone I admire a great deal um, who the world has chosen not to admire is Rick Wagner. Um, And It actually has to do with how he handled, you know, he had the most public firing I think Americans had in about 50 years. Um, And I think he was fired for reasons that were unfounded. And I think he was fired by someone who had not considered far enough the consequences of that decision, right? He's handled that with a grace that is unbelievable. What he did, you know, what occurred, just to give you a sense of the quality he illustrated, um, when that decision was taken, he was actually due a ton of money, a ton of money. And um, he essentially said, I will continue working for the period of time necessary for you not to owe me that money for a buck a year, right? Now, if you imagine how most of us would feel about having been given the most public firing in you know, a long, long, long time um, for circumstances that he probably didn't believe were justified. I don't. I mean, I I haven't tested that with him really because I think it's too too soon. Um, I don't know that I would have been would have responded that way, right? He responded with unbelievable grace because he actually said my job, I was the CEO of General Motors and my job was to make sure that General Motors is better off when I left. So this is what I mean by selflessness. This is the, the, the perfect illustration of selflessness. In a time when many other people would have said, forget it, he said, but I, I, I ran this place, and therefore I need to do it right. So, so I think there's a piece that has to do with just grace under leadership and. Most of the great leaders I've met um, or I've come to admire have that quality to them. Second one actually is interesting is uh, is I got to study John Mack as this crisis was occurring, right? And Morgan Stanley was as close to failure as Lehman at at some points in time. And through sheer power of will, he willed it to survive. And and you got to remember, he had just taken over and didn't have everyone with him, right? So there was a there was a period where he had actually been kicked out of the organization, gone to run Credit Suisse, and then had been brought back. And there was this divided house inside the organization, that was really pretty strong, and um, and and he actually was able to galvanize the whole organization in a way that no other bank leader was, and actually carried it through. So it's way better off now than others were, um, and it was in really, really, really quite. Difficult straits, and it was just the sheer will. And so, what's interesting is, is, is that if said, "You know, can, will you ever get that same thing in two people?" I don't know. Grace and Will. I wish you could, but but uh, but I think what was what was impressive about both of them. I go back to my first point. Neither one of them cared a hoot about themselves. Right. John's job was to help Morgan Stanley succeed, and he actually went through some unbelievably painful stuff to make that happen. It was his job, right? Um, Rick's job was to make sure the GM was better off, not worse off, um, even though he wasn't even running it anymore. Um, so that was one piece. Second piece is that, that uh, the level of actually consideration of other that was incorporated in their behavior was really pretty remarkable in both cases, right? And, and then just the character they exhibited in both cases. is just astounding. So, you know, um, those would be two. Thank you.
1: Well, um, there is a roving microphone which is more than happy to rove in your direction. I can't see where it's just gone for a moment. It will rove in your direction if your hand reaches for the sky. Yeah, uh, if there, you it there it is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sorry, I disappeared for a second. I didn't realize it quite went that far around the back. Now it's your turn for the discussion. And, uh, and, and I, I've, been, I've been seeing you paying attention, so, so I, I hope that you have some questions. If you'll just get my attention, even if you don't need the sound augmentation, it helps us for the recording. So are there any questions?
3: Thanks, Gaston. Um, picking up on the conversation about difficult times um, and leaders, and specifically um, what we're doing at Fuqua, um, there are challenges that our leaders have. I mean, we've just seen it now with Toyota. There are impacts in in uh, communications with the media. There are impacts as it relates to communications with communities. Um, there are impacts in relationships and strategic relationships across the board, elected officials. There are also some impacts as it relates to maybe philanthropic concerns. Um, I would appreciate maybe hearing a little bit about how uh, Fuqua is helping prepare leaders as it relates to those external forces. Because when when I was here in 80, um, we really didn't talk that much about that. And and most of those skills were, um, I, I should say, almost all of them were OJT.
2: Um, so, so, a bit about our philosophy of teaching leadership at Fuqua. Uh, part of our sense is that the, the best opportunity to learn to lead is to actually lead, right? So, we create a ton of circumstances where people get to be responsible for things that are actually fairly important, right? So, I'm looking at a guy who's running our MMS program. And and I think it's fair to say, I mean, the head of the MMS Association, and I think it's fair to say that he's confronted some external constituency issues that, and handled them incredibly well but it's because we created the role that he found himself in those circumstances and and, and it's been actually a thrill to watch him by the way um, unfortunately went to carolina's undergrad which is like you know so, so obviously they did a good job it was whatever happened in high school that taught him um, but but uh, but but so so a piece of it is that we actually create circumstances and then part of our job is to actually be available to coach and counsel in the moment right um and we try to do that right so so where, where I think when you were here, we didn't have as much of that opportunity, right? Second one is that actually there's this premise that actually one of the ways to teach leadership, one of the ways to learn leadership is to be asked to teach it yourself. And so there's a responsibility of the second years that they teach the first years in the MBA program. There's a responsibility in the MMS program, for example, that they figure out how to carry it forward to the next year so it becomes this ethos and culture that gets carried forward in the institution. Um, and so we have this group um, who, um, are asked to lead, who are asked to actually te- help teams be more effective um, and are taught how to help teams be more effective who were actually themselves pretty good at, on their own team, right? So they go from being good on a team to actually teaching others how to be on a team, right? Um, and, and so f- I, the, the, the approach is create the opportunity. And then supplement that with intellectual content in the classroom, right? And I think we could do a better job of that than we're doing, and we're working very hard at that. Right? The issue of external constituents um, is—it's ho- it's hard to create that in a, in an internal context like the business school, right? So we do it as much as we can. So we have jobs that are outside looking, but it's hard to create. And so I think we still have a bit of that—that that in in the in the experience sense. There's only about maybe a quarter of the roles that have leadership responsibility that have that kind of quality to it. Um, But we have added significantly more content on the teaching side to the curriculum than we used to have. And we do more and more of it the more senior the program. So in the global MBA, there's a tremendous amount of activity on that. In the cross continent MBA, a little less. In the daytime MBA, a little less. In MMS, a little less. Because people actually find themselves to differential degrees in those circumstances. Um, But I I wish we could find more ways to have how do you manage external constituencies as a part of your role than we do. Because actually an awful lot of recent failures have to do with not doing that well either because you allowed the constituency to drive your behavior and forget why you were here in the first place or because you actually remembered why you are here but you botched up the communications with the constituency, right? Now I think Toyota did both by the way. If you take the Toyota example, you know, Toyota actually lost its way, you know, and it's interesting that Toyota way lost its way, right? Um, and, and they lied, you know, knowingly lied. And, you know, so there's this phrase in, there's this really wonderful article on uh, the difference between a Japanese and American apology, right? That's in Law and Society Review 20 years ago, and essentially, The article says that a Japanese policy takes the following form. Um, I am the cause of a very terrible event that caused significant harm to you. I am deeply sorry that I harmed you and I promise I will do whatever is required to make sure that never happens again. This is a stylized apology. An American apology goes something like, I'm sorry I find myself in a difficult circumstance to have to apologize to you, <laughs> right? Because, frankly, I don't give a hoot that I hurt you. It's just painful I'm here in front of the microphones, right? Now, I think what's, what's ironic is actually the head of Toyota gave an American apology. Right? We taught him really well how to not care, right? And I think that somehow what we have to do is go back to say, you know, this is why I, you know, I, I really have this notion about sort of that if you have got to remember why you're here, you resonate, and that will guide a lot of external constituency behavior. But there's some, there's some, there's some lessons in that, right? Um, and, and you know, we're we're teaching it, but I think we aren't giving it as much experience as we could, and it's just hard to figure out how to do. It, that's all. Yeah. First, uh, Blair and Sam, thank you. Uh, for this uh, stimulating dialogue today uh, i 'm glad that you mentioned the Toyota example. My question is, Blair, um, putting a multinational uh, and multicultural lens on leadership in difficult times, given all your comments today, uh, with that lens, what might you change or add? Probably not subtract, but to managing multiculturally not necessarily managing. Multiculturally, but it would be entailed in that. But just your perspective of leadership from a fully global perspective. Mm-hmm. In one sense, I'm assuming that, but to me, that's an interesting focus. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, two examples for Rick and yeah, John. Yeah, 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 I gave you. I gave you. But there are people I know personally, right? Um, so, d- just uh, two pieces. I think that is the sixty-four thousand dollar question, right? Uh, and there's a couple of pieces to it. One of them is that um, some of the best writing on leadership today is about values-based leadership, right? That flies in the face of um, radically different civilizational forms, right? Because actually, um, you don't start with the same value proposition. You don't start with the same set of values. You Start with a slightly different set of values, right? So, so I'm going to give you a discussion. I made a point. On our board of visitors, we had this really interesting conversation about, um, but Blair, don't you know that actually some of the critical kind of Judeo Christian ethics that we hold dear that make the market work aren't going to sell too well in Dubai, right? And the premise was that actually there's a kind of sleaziness in Dubai that you don't see in the United States, right? And it turned out, there was merit to that argument at least for a portion of the population that were just doing terrible things. But that actually wasn't people from the Emirates, it was people who had come in and seen the boom town, right? But actually the, there was a board member who turned around and said, but don't you understand that actually it goes both ways because um, the idea that someone could surround the capital city and buy influence is an unbelievably considered immoral act in the UAE. Um, so, why are you right?
3: right?
2: And so I think one of the requisites that comes with this highly interdependent global world is to actually have a much more thoughtful consideration of first principles. Right? So, so, you know, another example is uh, our partner in, um, in um, Shanghai, right, It's really interesting for two fronts. They're actually the place that might be the source of the Google stuff, right? Um, it's really, I mean, actually their view of that is not the same as ours. And it's really important to understand their view of that before you actually decide what's right. right? I don't mean to say that they're right, but I do mean to say you actually understand their view of it. It probably isn't the case while It's probably the case that actually the military, because they have a relationship with Jiao Tong, actually used a Jiao Tong computer to do it. But, but that aside, um, or the intelligence community, if we found it was that, you still have to look at it from that way. And what's really interesting is the following issue which is you've got to think about that notion in light of a discussion I had last time I was over in China. I had a discussion with a probably new dean where he said, Blair, you know, Weber would say that China can't be good at entrepreneurship because you've got to be Christian and be good at entrepreneurship, right? Um, and we've been living with that argument for, since Weber wrote. Uh, and actually, there was a credible point that that was true until the last 10 years where China's just taken off entrepreneurially. And they're now trying to figure out what does it mean to be a post-communist Confucian entrepreneur? What does it mean to create a market with that as a set of premises? Turns out Confucian philosophy isn't mine. Right? I grew up a Presbyterian, essentially, right? And and they're not the same. Right? So I love Adam Smith because he and I come from exactly the same background, right? They don't. And and so the idea of what's appropriate and good behavior is actually quite different. So it challenges the whole notion of what's a media values-based leader, right? But I still think you have to hold that as a premise, which is that at some level you're going to find the common values that exist across humanity, at least in the context of the business you're engaged in, find those and lead from that premise. It's just way harder now than than it was 15 years ago is one point.
0: You know, there's a saying that some men are born great and some achieve greatness. And I think Fuqua and Duke endeavours to help people to become leaders and achieve greatness. At a personal and a society level, everyone, including leaders, uh, experience difficult times. So how do you motivate yourself and especially how did you motivate yourself during your formative years and especially the people around you?
2: So do you want to do that one? We can, do, we can both do it.
1: Okay, sure. Shall I start with yeah. that? In, um, I think my... Uh, going back to your will and grace, <laughs> uh, I, th- I, think, I think probably my parents were will and grace in the sense that I think my mother was uh, very ambitious for me uh, and my father was an underachiever. Uh, who was absolutely fine with that uh, and wanted me to know that I was loved. My mother died when I, was a, when I was a teenager, and so I think I never quite knew what her ambition for me was really going to translate into, although I, I, she, uh, she was one of these people that unless uh, their children are physicians, it's always going to be a bit of a failure. Um, and so uh, that, that die was cast probably when I was about 13, and my science results started coming in. In a serious way, um, so I, I think I wanted to be—I I wanted to be the best me that I could be. Um, I, I, I had a prof- quite a profound experience when my second child was born, actually in the delivery room. Uh, and my second, my first child was a, I mean, our first, so it wasn't just me. Uh, uh, my wife and I's first child was a boy and the second child was a girl and, and I was, had this e- immense sense of joy I mean you get very strong feelings when children are born but I had an immense sense of joy that she was a girl not just that she was alive and kicking and everything uh, and I've spent a long time reflecting on that, you know, a couple of years after she was born reflecting on that and, and I came to the conclusion that what that was really about was that I have spent a lot of my life avoiding comparison if I look at the jobs that I've I've held, uh, they've mostly been ones that had no comparison, you know, it wasn't one of a number, you know, Duke Chapel, for example, isn't one of a number of similar institutions in America. It's pretty much unique. Uh, And most of the jobs I've done have been like that. Uh, And I think that's part of being the best me that I can be rather than judging myself by being better than the other guys. Because being better than the other guys, well, the sample is always inadequate. That's never, that's not going to get you anywhere to be one to be the best of that sample. And I, uh, I've often said around you, you know, I've, I've met enough Nobel Prize winners now to know that they they always say, oh, it was a bit of a bad year that year. It was, you know, it was nothing, you know, they, they all, n- none of them feel that they that that comparison with others is, is adequate. You've got to be looking for other places to uh, evaluate yourself other than comparison with others. So, but I, I didn't realize that until my daughter was born and I, and the significance of her being a daughter was that I assumed that if they were two brothers they'd just compete with each other and and they'd never get past that sense of competition with one another, which many siblings don't. Um, So I I think that would be, you know, strive to be who only you can be would be my motto uh, in in that regard. I think that's the the sort of motto that's kept me going.
2: Um, So I grew up in a family that sort of was great at the nature of the world he was describing, which is that every dinner conversation was a competition, right? I was actually the youngest of four, and so I lost most of the time, (laughs) it turns out. Um, But it was unbelievable, so just a quick story. My wife met my father uh, at an inn in Northern Ontario, and he comes to the front door and hands her a a sheet of paper and says there's these 10 quizzes, solve them. But then he looks her in the eye and says, by the way, there's ten parts of the human body that have three letters that aren't vulgar. You have an hour to give me the answer. Right? That's the household I grew up in, right? So, so you can imagine I sort of had an experience quite like his as a child. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and for what's worth, there's not a single thing in the world I was better than them at. There's just absolutely nothing, because there were three out of me, right? And, and they were all pretty efficacious what they did. So one of the things I did was I actually found what I was good at, right? So I actually took up swimming because no Canadian in their right mind would swim, and, um, and got pretty good at it. And, and actually, it allowed two things. It allowed me time away from home to discover who I was, separate from them. I, I built my own identity, right, in the context of time at swim meets doing things. And it allowed me to be good at something where I didn't compete with other people. I competed with my own time. So I'd give exactly the same answer, which is that you sort of identify, identify who you are and what you want to be and just be good at it, right? And, and then I think the other piece is uh, related to sort of the observation about, you know, how, how I've tried to respond to difficult times here or anywhere when I've been in it is that um, adaptation is a really important skill, right? The ability to actually be hit with something, understand it, figure out what the issues are, take steps to reacquire some sense of efficacy and then move is just a really important skill. And the way you acquire that skill is to have a lot of crap thrown at you. Right, And so m- my advice would be, know thyself first, and second, put yourself in a lot of crappy circumstances. And I mean in a good sense, crappy, not bad sense, crappy. But 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 get a lot thrown at you, right? And this is actually my answer to your question about sort of what we're trying to do with our students. The more we throw at them, the more we put them in circumstances we get stuff thrown at them, the better off we are, right? Because especially in a nurturing environment, right? Because I think one of the issues that we owe is that if you make a mistake, it doesn't, it doesn't kill you, right? It doesn't, doesn't do harm. And if you are harmed, we, you know, we metaphorically bring you home, give you soup and a hot bath and put you to bed, right? We, we take care of you in that process um, so that, you, that you, don't get, you don't get scared by it. You know you can get up tomorrow and you can get on the bike tomorrow, even if you didn't make it today, right? So, so that would be my answer.
0: And I think we only have time for one more question.
3: Yes, thanks. We're happy to be visiting today and uh, enjoyed uh, the discussion. Um, If we take quote-unquote code word broken government today uh, as almost an ultimate challenge of leadership, um, and you each were asked from your respective realms, uh, institutional leadership and um, spiritual or moral, whatever, uh, to counsel a, le- a top leader in Washington, going back to first principles and why are we here, and how to deal with times that indeed are more complex, more difficult, more challenging. What would be, what would each of you counsel uh, these, a, a top leader in Washington?
2: So I'll go first, and you can do the benedictory comment because that's probably appropriate. Um, uh, uh, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that are really important to understand is that the challenge of the day is not just that the institution's broken, but the challenge of the world is way harder than it's ever been, right? And and um, because of its complexity. I don't mean, mean you know, there are times when it was really important and, and a single decision would decide the outcome of the world in a very important way, right? But, but I do mean to say it's unbelievably complex. You just sort of think about how many things actually need work, for example, right? So so i start with a couple of pieces. First is, one of the jobs of a leader is to actually create a future that people are excited by. And it has to be a, uh, it has to be a future that well, almost all people are excited by, right? Um, and so, for example, the, you know, uh, Kennedy's speech on Man on the Moon was actually a very important speech because it galvanized the U.S. when it was feeling very self-conscious about having fallen behind Russia, right? Um, and, and, and I think in times that are especially challenging, there needs to be a sense of there is a future that's better. Because one of the things I worry about today is if you ask, if you look at surveys, most, most people believe their life is going to be worse than their parents. That's a really bad state of affairs for a country, right? So first thing is that. Second thing is, because there are so many things, you have to pick a very few fights. You have to decide what matters most and do it, right? You've got to, and this is really sort of what Sam was saying. As I think about all the things we've got to do at Fuqua, there's just millions of them, so you just, but you've got to do the one that actually does the most for you in the, mo- in the present moment, right? And um, because it turns out, if you try to solve everything, you'll solve nothing. You know, Jack of all trades, master of none. Jane of all trades, mistress of none. And that, and, uh, therefore, a, and this is really hard because it requires a discipline that says, I know there are many, many, many important things. I know there are many, many harms being done in the world, but I've got to nail this one because if I nail this one, we'll start momentum going, right? And then I think the third piece of advice would be, remember what makes the country great, and start from there. I think there's a, very few, I mean, there's a few things that make the United States great. One of them is our entrepreneurial spirit, our innovation, and so start from there. Um, another one is sort of a sense of human decency. Start from there, and, and, and connect to the few things that make us great, because remember the job of Washington, in part, is to reinvigorate the institution in the United States. Right, so those would be my three core pieces of advice. Um, I would say,
1: uh, I would, yeah, forgive (coughs) me for being perhaps a little pious, uh, since I'm a, in your words, spiritual or moral or whatever person. Um, But I would say that the heart of the Christian faith is the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And I would say spend some time thinking about the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's to say the political significance of those two notions. Uh, the forgiveness of sins means when you make a mistake, say, I've made a mistake. Uh, I don't know if people remember who Neil Kinnock was, where he led the Labour Party in England in the, uh, in the 1980s. And in the in 1970s, when he was, must have been just a boy, he uh, very publicly was part of the, the, the movement that campaigned for Britain to leave the European community only a couple of years after it had joined it. Uh, and in the 1990s, having failed to take lo- Labour into government, he, uh, uh, he became a European commissioner. And I remember hearing him hin- interviewed and someone, you know, some wise but nonetheless understandable person called in and said, well, okay, Mr. Kinnock. Uh, you campaigned against this thing and then you went on the gravy train and you took that job uh, yourself Uh, how do you justify that and he said when I realize I'm wrong and I made a mistake uh, I say sorry and I change my mind what do you do and I've never forgotten that because that's somebody who believes in the forgiveness of sins Uh, politics is not very forgiving of sin but when you've got somebody who, who's guaranteed an office at least for the next two or three years who has the courage to say that, I think it has an extraordinarily liberating effect. In terms of eternal life, I'd say uh, the thing that grieves me about the current circumstances in Washington at the moment is that Obama, you know, Obama's election was just yesterday, and now everyone's saying, well, of course, he's got to do this because of his second term. Wouldn't it be wonderful to rule as if you weren't thinking about your second term? Uh, as if eternal life wasn't being elected a second time. Because everyone knows the second term will come to an end. And we know how wonderfully liberated was the second term of our last president when he didn't have to worry about being re-elected. He did all those wonderful things in the last couple of years because he had so much freedom. So uh, to me, it's, it's nonsense to talk about this wonderful opportunity of the second term when he'll really do the real stuff. If he's got real stuff to do, he should do it now. And if he doesn't get elected next time, but he went down fighting, good for him. Uh, that seems to me what's what I would call being an example. So I would those, those would be the two. Uh, you, know, you know that phrase about dance when, as if no one's looking and, and all that kind of thing that you send on Valentine's cards to people. Well, I mean, I assume you do. Uh, do you, you know, dance as if no one's looking and, and, and you know, sing as if, uh, as if you're in the shower and this kind of thing? You know, Live life to the full is the basic idea. This is a British Valentine card. Oh, probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> For me, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and uh, not that I send a lot. Yeah, know, yeah, so yeah. yeah, Hopefully uh, one, just the one. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and uh, <laughs> it seems to me that's that's belief in eternal life. I mean, y- you know, do 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 the right thing, and, and, and you know, finally, you're in senior leadership. You've got a chance, really, to do it. Well, well, do it. Don't don't still think of a hundred reasons why you shouldn't, because you won't get elected next time, or probably the opinion polls. <laughs> do it, do it. You're in the one of the only people in the country who's in position, really, to do it. Live you know, live eternal life now. So I would say forgiveness and eternal life would be the two principles I'd offer our senior leaders.
0: Well, I, I get the sense that we could go on and on wi- wi- with this discussion, and I hope that you do continue this discussion. It's one of the reasons that we begin these so that the, the seed started now you'll continue in your own, in your own lives, in whatever capacity uh, you, you're moving. I don't have another date for another Dean's dialogue to give you. We've had to shuffle some things around, but I do invite you to look at the Duke Chapel website from time to time and also in the Chronicle, and hopefully we'll have another date soon. It's wonderful to see the various deans discussing this topic uh, fr- from their various angles. Now I would hope that we could uh, thank our deans for, for, for letting us sit in on the discussion and join in. Thank you. Thank you very much.